<laughs> okay, welcome everyone to a new episode of Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers at UCU, at University College Utrecht. I teach economics. I'm also a tutor. And I'm here today with tutor and lecturer in art history, Tiana Jacula. Tiana, could you maybe shortly introduce yourself? No, my name is, well, as you've already said, <laughs> such and such. For Tiana Jacula, I am a lecturer in art history. I specialize in 17th century Dutch art, even more specifically in Dutch art theory. I've been teaching at UCU for 13 years now. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I've been also happily tutoring and uh, sharing office with you for 10 years, or actually even more than 10 years. Yes, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's already 10 and a half years. <laughs> and because um, you had a, you have an unusual background, because you didn't start out in academia, right? You uh, attended the conservatory first. Yes, yeah. Actually, I um, switched from... I was um, struggling with um, actually deciding what to do and what to study. And um, even though my high school recommendation was to go um, either into mathematics or into physics, I <laughs> disregarded, <laughs> <A bit> different. <laughs> yeah, I disregarded that uh, recommendation and went um, into language and um, culture. Mm -hmm. um, part of uh, the high school curriculum and then was um, sort of um, trying to decide whether it would be a law school or art history and then in that process I was um, seduced by the kind of carefree spirit of um, life of a musician <laughs> so I decided to enter the conservatory and um, I studied the violin for three years. Mm -hmm. And then I had um, an accident, uh, which actually put my music career to its end. Okay. And because you studied the violin in Utrecht. Is yes. That correct? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and, and what happened when you had that accident? Because you had to basically give up on the violin. Yes. And then back to the original dream or no 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 it, it was already actually a year before this um, happened that I had entered um, art history department uh, back in Belgrade which is my hometown just to have something actually what um, I realized when I went into like music 100% is that um, it did not leave any room for like any basically intellectual pursuits. So that is something that I found um, increasingly boring. And that is why I entered art history. And um, then I basically um, had a backup plan all along, which was uh, quite nice. And um, it didn't make it um, as dramatic as it otherwise could have been. Yeah. And because uh, your specialty is in 17th century Dutch, art history yes. why that period what about that period makes it so sad uh, so fascinating for you um what uh, was especially fascinating for me is that uh, that 17th century art is predominantly secular because it has 
little or nothing to do with um, religion or with, um, say, monarchic um, tendencies and absolutistic um, tendencies with royalty, with uh, upper class, but um, it's actually art. I mean, it is not um, really fair to say for every Tom, Dick and Harry, but that's yeah. what it basically comes down to. And um, that is uh, what I found uh, particularly fascinating, especially when I saw the Night Watch for the very first time, because you see a group of citizens, albeit very wealthy ones, they're still citizens. They're, uh, they belong to the bourgeoisie of Amsterdam, and that is something that I found profoundly fascinating. And then another facet that um, actually cemented my um, wish to specialize in Dutch 17th century art history is that uh, some of our um, genre scenes that are scenes of everyday life uh, would carry sort of um, moral messages and uh, would actually speak to the mind of the viewer and um, and by doing so um, what they did they inherited a lot of um, the idea to or actually prodesse delectare which means to instruct and delight that um, typically belonged and were the prerogative of um, history painting which is like painting of uh, biblical and mythological mm -hmm. subjects yeah and my guess is, but I know very little about it, of course, that the Netherlands is quite unique in that in the world, right? Absolutely. What about Dutch society allowed that kind of art to uh, to arise? Well, um, first of all, um, there was no, I mean, majority of um, Dutch or rather Northern Netherlands, let's be historically accurate about it, Northern Netherlands um, nobility was, um, annihilated, killed off, decapitated during the um, 80, actually at the very beginning, at the dawn of the 80-year war. And um, then, um, so you, you do not have um, um, the nobility as was present um, elsewhere in Europe. Mm -hmm. So one patron no longer, like actually, one breed of patrons no longer exists in the Netherlands. And of course, with the switch and the advent of the Protestantism, the church is no longer there as the other patron yeah. art. And then artists were struggling to find new ways of um, earning their living, which automatically means that uh, the Netherlands or the Northern Netherlands was the very first European region to rethink ways of placing art and producing art, um, which also meant uh, the um, advent of the free art market, then art dealerships, and also uh, many people were buying directly from painters and from their studios. So there are actually economic reasons for yeah, a change in genre, change in direction. And uh, the uh, preeminent um, kind of yeah, specialist and um, 
scholar in um, the um, say uh, realm of um, economic art history was an economist himself and uh, he specialized in eastern european markets okay <laughs> the iron curtain he is uh, he was unfortunately an american scholar and michael montius and uh, after well um, the fall of the berlin wall he desperately needed to find another kind mm -hmm. of um area of research and that was Dutch 17th century painting and the production thereof. Okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because your own work is mainly about Girard de la Res, right? Um, many more things, but yeah. um, yes, um, it's it's been um, a starting point to many sort of stories that I pursued. Um, his book, that he dictated to his sons is like an enormously rich, absolutely a gold mine of um, information. And um, it led me to Austria, to uh, England, to Brazil, to Portugal, yeah. <laughs> and where not. So it's, um, yeah, so that's true and um, not true at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but your, uh, your PhD was about him, basically. And in particular, the book you're referring to, that would be the Grootschilder book. Yes. I imagine the big painters. Yes. Book. Yeah. So how did that lead you to Brazil? <laughs> oh, because uh, it was um, exported or rather, yeah, it was exported to Brazil. Um, there was, um, that's what uh, my latest article is dedicated to. It was, um, and I have to say, uh, this is not something that I would um, usually encourage my students to do. <laughs> but I googled it. Oh, disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> I googled, because I was, um, what I was um, looking for was uh, the date of, um, if I remember correctly, the third edition, the third Dutch edition of Trout's Hilde book. And um, then all of a sudden, a Portuguese version of the book showed up, it just popped up. And I had never ever heard of uh, the Portuguese version of um, the Trout's Hilde book. So I um, started, uh, I took it from there and uh, it opened up um, a number of um, new leads. So it was not only uh, translated into German, French and English, but into Portuguese as well. Yeah. And then it eventually landed in Brazil and started um, actually the um, printing presses and commercial, commercial press in Brazil. Okay. And because um, the research itself, as you say, it was a starting point for many other things you've done afterwards. So what other things have you worked? Uh, how, how did, where did it lead you to? It was, it led me to Spain and to Murillo mm -hmm. because um, it was uh, what I kind of, um, what um, this research revealed was that um, Herr de la Reste could have seen, or actually did see, one of uh, Morello's uh, famous genre paintings that were made only and exclusively for the northern clientele who lived in Spain. 
yeah. to settle there for a number of, again, economic reasons. And um, it is uh, very funny because uh, De La Reste saw in one of Morelos' uh, signature paintings of um, sort of young street prowlers, something profoundly erotic, something that would not even occur to us. Yeah. But um, it was evidently juice dripping from the mouth of um, a young ragamuffin <laughs> that was um, so overtly sexualized yeah. that he recommended that a portrait painter should never ever have such a painting hanging in his studio because um, it would lead the sitter to kind of, uh, it would make um, the sitter imagine all sorts of smutty details and uh, irreverent thoughts. Okay. Your field is so much more interesting than mine. <laughs> and then another one that I uh, particularly liked was uh, the story of uh, Franz Xavier Messerschmidt. Okay. He was um, an Austrian um, sculptor who made a number of the so-called character heads. And those uh, character heads are seen... Um, sort of an oddity in art history. Um, nobody had deciphered uh, what their purpose was. It was mainly ascribed to their production, to like mental issues that um, uh, Messerschmitt was uh, facing towards, um, especially towards the end of uh, his life. But um, I found in uh, Delares's book that um, a serious painter was uh, very um, warmly recommended and advised um, to produce a number of plaster casts after the so-called, made after the so, or actually showing the so-called passions. Yeah. And passions are emotional responses to different stimuli and to, well, different facial responses to different emotions that uh, we feel. And um, then I actually called the Viennese um, School of Art or their art academy to find out um, if their 18th century curriculum, because that's where Messerschmitt lived and worked, if they had um, uh, Herr de la Reste's uh, book in German mm -hmm. and uh, if it was used in training and the answer was yes. So it was uh, actually one of uh, the very first books that they acquired and um, then I took it from there and um, uh, I actually um, one thing led to another and it is quite likely that um, Messerschmitt made those things as for actually a purpose of um, artistic training and not only training but also painting after them because it yeah. is much more convenient to have a three-dimensional model that you can observe from every side and then paint from there yeah. than to have a two-dimensional model that was uh, made by Charles Brun. 
uh, the direction of uh, the French Academy, and that led to completely like super boring uh, depictions of different uh, passions because many painters copy pasted them. But um, it was also much easier to have a sculpture than a sitting model. Can you imagine like pulling faces for hours on end? No yeah. one is capable of doing it. <laughs> and then what happened is that um, much to, uh, well, um, Messerschmitt's uh, chagrin and uh, to, um, he was actually unfortunate, uh, he was perceived as uh, quite gooberish in Viennese um, snobbish circles. Yeah. And when he was up uh, for being granted and being promoted to full professorship at the academy, um, thanks to a clever ploy on um, on the part of local snobs, um, he was declined the position, and uh, most unfortunately, at the same time, um, the very first book ever written in academic art history um, kind of was published, and that book, written by Johann Joachim Winkelmann, claims that every emotion cast on one's face is detrimental to beauty and that was yeah, <laughs> not at all so no wonder that um he fled or rather he uh, left vienna and uh, spent um, the rest of um, his life in nowadays um, slovakia and um, actually was kind of um, labeled as um, stark raving mad but that may not have been the case no, maybe more frustrated than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're currently you're working on quite a few papers at the moment. Um, which is your favorite one that you're working on right now? Uh, my favorite one that I'm uh, actually it's it's been sitting now with my uh, proofreader for seven oh. weeks. Oh, that's long. <laughs> Very long, and I'm marvelously late with submitting it. <laughs> But um, it is um, about the um, perception or rather the reinterpretation of Horace, famous um, Roman author from the first century AD, the interpretation of uh, Horace in the 17th century Netherlands, actually towards the end of the 17th century and the use of um, his writings in art and in theater. Yeah. Because in our theory, um, it is not really right to say that Horace has been abused right from the start, but um, let's say that um, he was uh, interpreted in a way that kind of uh, was fitting to our theoreticians who wanted to invest the art of painting with the dignity of a liberal art. So they wanted some theory to it and Horace was used mm -hmm. to that end but it was indeed exclusively um, pertaining to history painting and um, all of a sudden uh, towards the end of the 17th century um, Pierre de la Reche and um, his buddies from the theater learned society Neil Volantibus Ardum or nothing is impossible for the willing 
or whereas the will there is a way yeah um so they actually kind of tweaked horace in order to um sort of promote and theoretically underpin genre painting and also parody and satire in the theater yeah but no one found it funny Oh, <laughs> because what they were doing, it's actually, it's political correctness avant la lettre. Yeah. You really have to be, because in their view, one had to be uh, decent through and through in order to be capable by means and by way of painting or uh, theater um, in order to transmit a morally uplifting message yeah. but um it was profoundly unfunny it seems and mm -hmm. um it actually kind of failed miserably as an experiment yeah moral art is usually not the most entertaining let's put it that way no and it can be a bit boring yeah theatrical <laughs> <laughs> the productions were purged of smashiness um indecent vocabulary and that is what uh, made it um so you figured that will make a great topic for a paper boring yeah. art <laughs> okay um well you've been teaching at the art history department as well before and as you mentioned you've been at ucu for a long time already um how is it different teaching in a liberal arts and sciences environment because you obviously have a very different uh, classroom no, absolutely. And um, I have to say that uh, it's much more fun, mm -hmm. simply because uh, students are more active and uh, proactive mm -hmm. in asking questions. The um, classroom is much more entertaining at um, UC than <laughs> in the Department of uh, Humanities. Uh, we're teaching more often than not. Unfortunately, I've never had um, an opportunity to read teaching the research master, which is another, that's another yeah. kettle of fish. But uh, when you're teaching in the bachelor program, um, it means that you are talking at your students with very little or no interaction whatsoever. And that's what I find uh, very entertaining at uh, UC. And um, especially if you have um, interested um, students who are coming from other departments who will inevitably have a number of ideas as to how to approach an art historical topic from another perspective. Yeah. Neuroscience, physics, chemistry, um, anthropology, the list is absolutely endless. Because you've been teaching uh, a course last winter together with an anthropologist, Rhoda Woods, about yes. fashion, one of your other passions. Um, and it was supposed to be one this summer, but with everything going on, that was unfortunately cancelled. Uh, what have you been working on together with Rhoda? Um, Rhoda and I have been working together with the Department of um, Fashion at HKU, Hochschule für die Künste in Utrecht. Yes. And uh, what we did uh, was actually we tried to find a way of um, connecting or rather linking, I'm now um, speaking from um, the art uh, or rather from UCU perspective, uh, we were trying to link theory to the practice of 
making garments and making fashion. Mm-hmm. And we've been collaborating with um, a philosopher of uh, sports and um, sports gear, then uh, with uh, a full-blown fashion designer, Carol Bucker, mm-hmm. and uh, with um, another, as a matter of fact, also full-blown fashion designer, uh, Marina Tutters, mm-hmm. who also specializes in sustainable fashion and sustainable fabrics because mm-hmm. uh, she's been collaborating a lot with um, um, TU in um, Eindhoven, and I was uh, working on developing um, sort of smart fabrics yeah. that, uh, for instance, uh, measure your body temperature, then measure your heartbeat and whatnot, and stress levels as well. Yeah. So it's, um, it's been um, most entertaining, I have to say, because um, it is also fun to see how it works because I'm for instance in that course I am um, taking our students um, on a journey through historical development of um, fashion and um, this time around um, it focused on uh, cycling and Mm -hmm. um, uh, what we did I was actually uh, researching into cycling gear and how it uh, came about and uh, what was uh, um, quite a fun fact uh, for me to discover is that um, it uh, played uh, an enormously important uh, role in the emancipation of women mm, okay. cycling gear and uh, bifurcated uh, basically pants, yeah. garments, yeah. bottoms. And um, so, um, and a historical overview of it and how it uh, became enormously fashionable with like people of status and money quite recently. Uh, Whilst Rhoda is taking a more anthropological take on it with um, insights into, for instance, niche fashion markets as like sneaker heads and drives those people into buying uh, enormously um, expensive and like actually exorbitantly expensive uh, pairs of sneakers and what's actually behind that uh, market. Yeah. It's funny because I was in Hoogkaterijne last week and obviously right now, well, it's the mall in Utrecht. Or, well, yeah. It's not that busy at the moment. But all the stores are still open. There was only one store with a huge line outside, and that was the sneaker store. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> surprised. <laughs> Definitely a subculture of its own kind, yeah. for sure. Because what would you have done this summer if, if the course had taken place? Because I think the idea is to just delay it until... Yes. No, what, uh, was uh, the rhyme and uh, the main reason why we postponed it is because we planned on a number of um, excursions and um, guest lectures with fashion practitioners because we were planning on going to the textile museum we were even entertaining a thought and I think that uh, that is going to happen next year going to to go to Flisco and uh, Dutch Wax Okay. And we oh, do all the African fabrics. Yes. The one at St. Brabant. Yeah. A lot of yeah. the uh, traditional yeah. ones that you would see in Nigeria, I think. They're yes. Very big. Yeah. 
and actually come from the Netherlands. Yeah, it does come from the Netherlands. And uh, that's also a fascinating story because uh, how those fabrics came about, the Dutch were trying to copy or rather to make a cheaper version of batik. Of course. <laughs> of course. And then their version of batik was at least three times more expensive than the original. <laughs> so then they kind of invented uh, uh, shortcut number three and then landed with a flisco of fabrics that actually took and uh, became absolutely huge in uh, West Africa. Okay. Oh, that, oh, if you go on that excursion, let me know. I would love to okay, join the first place. And uh, that's something uh, right up Rhoda's uh, um, alley. Yeah. So that's going to be super fun. Cool. And is the plan for the winter or for the summer next year? or uh, For the summer next year. Um, and for the winter, we are still awaiting the decision of the Board of Studies mm -hmm. if uh, the winter um, module is going to be approved for this. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Okay. So we talk a little bit about you as a researcher, a little bit about you as a teacher, but how about you as a human being? <laughs> um, you've had quite a long history with Utrecht because you were here for the conservatory. Yes. And you moved here when you were 18, 19? 18. 18. And you were back in Belgrade for a little bit? Yes. In Serbia? Okay. And then you came back here again? Yeah. Um, so what's your relationship to Utrecht? My relationship to Utrecht uh, is my uncle case. <laughs> my uncle... <laughs> so, my... Yeah. My uncle was uh, the director of uh, the university library here in Utrecht. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been visiting this city ever since I was um, six years old. Ah. That is ever since my aunt married own case. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I have to say that he also played a huge role in my art historical adventures as um, anything that uh, has been or rather uh, was published after 1991, uh, which coincided with the actually, beginning and of the civil war in Yugoslavia was um, not available to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So it means that um, Anke Case uh, was very busy copying <laughs> placing everything in huge envelopes. I bet oh. she that uh, my postman and my mailman was not particularly happy <laughs> with those huge packages yes. of literature, photocopied literature. <laughs> but um, hey, so that's um, how I um, landed here for my musical career. And um, even though um, I hadn't known much about um, uh, the Utrecht Conservatory before I received um, sort of, um, it was a leaflet, a booklet about uh, who was teaching here. I was actually quite stunned by the quality thereof, yeah. <laughs> which was um, through the roof. And um, then, yeah, so I ended up here in 2005 for my research masters, never to leave. Okay, there you go. And your, um, what's your favorite place in Utrecht? My favorite place in Utrecht, there are 
many. <laughs> but um, I think that um, my uh, most favorite uh, place in Utrecht is the inner courtyard of the Don. Ah, yes, that's gorgeous. Yeah, for those of you who haven't been there yet, you should definitely visit that. And I was ever so lucky to have my PhD borrow. <laughs> right there, yeah. Yeah, yes. That is a gorgeous location, like something from a movie or something. Absolutely. Cool, and you're, um, you're a big restaurant fan as well, of course. Um, this is an unusual time, unfortunately. Lots of restaurants will be opening again next week, but they've been closed for a while. What is the first place that you are going to visit once they open again? Oh, I'm going this coming Monday to Zucker. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who are maybe interested in uh, going for dinner at Zucker, what should they order? Um, I think that everything that uh, comes from traditional French uh, brasserie is wonderful. Is good. Good. <laughs> okay, so we're almost nearing the end then. Is there anything else that you would like to add or still like to say maybe? I don't think so. Okay. 